listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Advent is, is the Christian season that involves the four Sundays before Christmas Day. And it's a season where we're waiting. Where that's, what, that's what Advent means. It means waiting, anticipating. We're anticipating the coming of our Lord. And, and so this is the second weekend of Advent 2021. And we're taking a break from our normal series in the Sermon on the Mount. And the title of my sermon this weekend is How Christ saves the world. And we're actually going to circle back to the text that we looked at last week, but we're going to take it in a totally different direction. And it involves the dedication of baby Jesus. When Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple to dedicate him, there's a couple interesting things that happen. But one of them is that there's this very mysterious man named Simeon who just kind of pops into the story. And, and we meet him in this story, and then we never read about him again. And so I want us to once again look at this passage, and then we're going to pray and jump into the sermon. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Let's pause and pray and gear our hearts. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful once again for an opportunity to meet with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And as part of our worship, we dedicate ourselves to listening to your voice. Help us now to set aside anything and everything that would potentially distract our minds from hearing exactly what you want to say to us individually and as a church. Sweep aside every barrier to divine communication, even through the frailty of a flawed communicator. Lord, let your spirit speak to our hearts, the very core of our beings. And may this word be fruitful for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So the baby is born in Bethlehem to his young parents, Joseph and Mary. And a few days after Jesus' birth, it's now time to dedicate him 
to the Lord. This was something that was part of the Jewish law. Your firstborn son, as a Jewish person, needed to be dedicated in the temple. And so Mary and Joseph now are going to make the short journey from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. It, it was like five miles, very close. And, and so they're going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to bring their newborn son into the temple to dedicate him. And they did this because they were observant religious Jews. And so they're going to dedicate him. And this would normally involve sacrificing a lamb. But there was a provision in the law for couples who were poor. That in the case where you could not afford a lamb for the sacrifice, well, in its place, you could now substitute two pigeons or two turtle doves. And that's exactly what we learn Mary and Joseph do here, which tells us that they were not people of means. They were not people of wealth. So they go to the temple to participate in this act of dedication. And, and as they're walking up the steps, you and I, we meet a guy named Simeon. Simeon, we're told, is righteous. He's devout. He's a man of prayer. And Simeon is waiting for something. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. You see, it had been hard times for Israel. It had been hard times, in fact, for a long time, for something like 800 years. The Jewish people had been beaten down and oppressed, conquered, occupied, ruled over by Gentile tyrants. And now with the Roman Empire in charge, now they were getting the worst of it. And so Simeon, this man of prayer, he's waiting for God to act. Because the prophets long ago had foretold that God's going to intervene. He's going to raise up a king. He's going to raise up a Messiah, a Savior, who's going to deliver his people. And so Simeon, like most of the Jews, they're waiting for this Messiah, for God to raise up this king. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. And somehow or another, God had given him this promise that he would not die until his eyes had seen this Messiah. So Simeon's hovering around the temple of Jerusalem. He's somewhere on the scene, and he's listening, and he's waiting, and he's, he's anticipating. This is the, corner, this is the um, culmination of his life, this moment when he expects God to fulfill this promise to him that he's going to see the Messiah. So he's waiting, he's anticipating, he's longing, and he's, he's hovering around the temple. And on this one particular day, at one particular moment, the Holy Spirit says, now, go in. And Simeon walks into the temple and he sees this couple holding this newborn baby. He takes the baby in his arms from the couple. He holds the baby up. And he says, Lord, you now are setting your servant free to go in peace. For my eyes have now seen the Savior, whom you prepared for all the world to see, a light to enlighten the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. Now, that last line right there, when Simeon says, a light to enlighten the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel, he's not making that up on the fly. In fact, Simeon is drawing upon an ancient prophetic poem that comes to us in Isaiah. In Isaiah 49, 
We have a prophecy about this coming king that God's raising up, this Messiah that God's going to send into the world. And I want to look at just a piece of it. In verse 5, we see uh, in this poem, the Messiah is saying this. The Messiah says, And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. And then in verse six, now the dialogue shifts and now we have Yahweh speaking to his Messiah. And look what Yahweh says. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. He says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So watch this. I just want you to see this connection. Hundreds of years before Jesus is born, in this prophetic poem, we have God speaking to his Messiah saying, it's not enough for you to just simply be the one who restores the survivors of Israel. No, I'm doing something much, much bigger than that. You're not just gonna restore Israel, but you are gonna be one who will bring light to the entire world. You will enlighten the Gentiles so that the whole world might experience the salvation that I'm bringing. So let's just say it like this. You're not just gonna be a Messiah for, for the Jews. You're gonna be a Messiah for the whole world. That's the promise. And this is the verse that Simeon is drawing upon hundreds of years later when he holds baby Jesus up and says, you're going to be a light to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. In fact, later on, the Apostle Paul in one of his sermons in Acts, he's going to actually refer to this same passage in one of his sermons to explain why he's preaching the gospel of the Jewish Messiah to a Gentile world. I mean, it turns out that Israel's Messiah is not just here for the sake of Israel. He's for the sake of the whole world. The Apostle John, in his first letter, chapter 4, verse 14, says this, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, here's the question I want us to ponder this morning. Now we're going to really get somewhere, all right? Turn to your neighbor and say, we're going to get somewhere now. All right. Here's the question. Here's the question. What do we mean when we speak of Jesus being Savior of the world? What do we think? What do we mean by that? When we read that language in the scriptures... When we read the prophets talking like this, when we read the apostles talking like this, when we read Simeon using this kind of language, when we read the apostle Paul using this language, when we see John talking about Jesus being the savior of the world, what do they mean? What is in their mind? What are they talking about? Well, throughout the long journey of church history, ever since the very beginning, from the day of Pentecost all the way to the present day, which means we got to go through Constantine and, and, and Christendom and uh, the Protestant Reformation and the rise of evangelicalism and various forms of fundamentalism. When we go through that long journey, what, what we've come to mean when we speak of Jesus being Savior of the world has at least in some corners 
become very constricted, reduced, minimalized, shrunken down. So much so that I, I need to make this point as explicitly as I can this morning. Listen, God sent his son into the world to be the savior of the world, not just parts of people for another world. God sent his son into the world to be the savior of the world. That's the language of the prophets and the apostles. And we shouldn't take that and shrink it down and narrow it down to meaning that God just sends his son into the world to save parts of people for another world. In other words, we should not think of salvation as simply Jesus saving souls for heaven. I insist be very careful about that kind of language. When you hear people talk like this, that Jesus simply saves souls for heaven, know that you've probably come upon a version of the gospel that's been shrunken down and reduced. I'm not saying that statement is false. I'm just simply saying it's way too small. Now, yes, Jesus saves souls. He's in the process of saving mine. He's been working at it for nearly 40 years because there's a lot entailed with that. But yes, Jesus saves souls. And yes, between our own death and resurrection, we are absent from the body and present with the Lord. So there, I'm not taking that away from you. That's all true. That's all, that's all part of the gospel. But what I'm telling you is that if you make it just that, you have veered off from Scripture. And you are preaching a version of the gospel that would have sounded very strange in the ears of the apostles. And it would have been utterly uncontroversial in the Roman world. When the prophets and the apostles talk about the Messiah saving the world, they're not just talking about souls. They're talking about the world. When they call Jesus Lord, they're not saying Lord of my heart. They're calling him Lord of all, Lord of heaven and earth, right here and right now, including Lord over Caesar and his realm. For God so loved the what? World. Now, if you continue reading John 3.16, if you're not careful, you'll make it way too personal, way too individualistic, but verse 17 saves us from that. We should know verse 17 just as well as we know verse 16. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Or as we just saw here in 1 John 4, 14, the apostle John says, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Now what does this world, what does this word mean, this word world, the way John uses it? Well, the Greek word here that John is using is the word cosmos. And here's what the Greek word cosmos means when you translate it into English. It means cosmos. <laughs> it includes it all. Cosmos, it includes God's good world, God's good creation. It also includes the goodness of human civilization, the social world, our human beings' relationships with one another. When human civilization is humane, and contributes to human flourishing. How many of you know that's a good thing? In fact, it's not just a good thing, it's a necessary thing. 
Now, what do we mean by human civilization? When we talk about human civilization, we're talking about language, art, culture, government, agriculture, science, education, formative religion, etc. That's not an exhaustive list, but includes all of that. How many of you know all of those things? That's part of what makes us human, right? If you can try to imagine a world without those things, like try to imagine a world without language, art, culture, governance, science, education, agriculture, formative religious practices. If you can imagine a world without those things, what you're really imagining is humans as animals. These are God's gifts, rightly understood. When they're aligned with God's purposes, these are God's good gifts. How, do you know, how many of you know God gives us language? God gives us art. God gives us culture. He gives us governance. He gives us education, science, agriculture, religious practices. God, these are part of God's good gifts to God's good world. And it's this world that God wants to save. But there is a world that God does not love and that God will not save. In this same letter, John also says this in chapter 2. Watch this. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So it's a little bit confusing, isn't it? How John, he takes the same word, cosmos, world, and he uses it not only in two different ways, in two opposite ways. He uses it in a positive and negative sense. And you and I just have to deal with it. But it's not too hard to decipher, at least I don't think it's too hard to decipher what world we are to love and what world we're not to love. God loves, therefore, we are to love God's good creation and the goodness of human flourishing. These are good things, things that Jesus Christ intends to redeem and bring to its fullest flourishing. But there's a world you and I are not to love, and John tells us what it is. It's the world that's become distorted by lust, greed, and pride. Those are the three biggies right there. Lust, greed, and pride. In other words, we are not to love the world when it becomes a cutthroat, dog-eat-dog, winner-take-all, competitive game. That's a distortion of the world that we're not to love. And so in this passage, God is telling us that when we love the world when it's like that, when it's a cutthroat, dog-eat-dog, winner-take-all, competitive game, the love of the Father is not in us because the Father's not like that. In fact, I'll just go so far as to say this. This vicious, lust-driven, greed-filled world of pride is what Jesus comes to save us from. And in its place, he brings the saving alternative of the kingdom of God. 
This is what the apostles and prophets mean when they speak of saving the world, that Christ offers to humanity a whole new way of doing life. And he's saying, here, arrange yourselves differently. Don't base your lives on on the foundation of lust and greed and pride. Instead, build it on the firm foundation we sang upon this morning. Build it on the foundation of his love, faith, and hope. In other words, Jesus is saying, organize yourselves around me. Orbit yourselves around me, and it'll save your world. He says, if I, even I, be lifted up, speaking of his cross, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. When we gaze upon the beauty of Christ on his cross, praying for his very executioners, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When we gaze upon that in worship, it has the potential and power to draw us into a whole new orbit, a whole new way of thinking, a whole new way of imagination, and a whole new way of living that is called the kingdom of God under the reign of Christ. All the best Christmas carols are about this. I love Christmas carols. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. He rules the world in truth and grace and makes the nations prove. You, you see, this is, a, this is a big picture here. This is, this is saying the world has a new ruler right now. And he's a good ruler. He's not like Caesar. He's not like Herod. He's different. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Hail the heavenly born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Stuff like this. When we begin to sing the songs of Christmas, not flippantly, but we sing them from the heart, we begin to belong to the world that is saved by Christ. The perfect picture of this is the Christmas truce of 1914. I want to show a picture on the screen. I want us to leave that picture up for the rest of the sermon. I'm not going to preach much longer. But I want to tell you the story of this historical event in 1914. World War I, December 24th, 1914. On the Western Front near Ypres, Belgium, right along the border with France. Trench warfare. Hell on earth if there ever was such a thing. They're in their trenches. The British soldiers on one side. The German soldiers on the other side. Mustard gas. Disease. Men living for weeks at a time in their trenches. Killing one another. In order to gain 100 feet and then lose 100 feet. And on and on it goes. In this human created hell on earth. But it's Christmas Eve. They've been in their trenches killing one another, but now it's Christmas Eve. And as the story goes, all of a sudden, one of those German soldiers in his trench begins to sing Silent Night. In German, of course. And it is a German song. 
And the British soldiers in the opposite trench, they can hear him. They don't know the words because they don't know German, but they, everybody knows the tune. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. And this German soldier begins to sing it. And then some of his other fellow comrades, German soldiers, they begin joining him and they begin singing. And then wouldn't you know it, across the other trench, these British soldiers, they begin joining in and they start singing it in English. Because what you've had here is you've got two groups of people who both confess that Christ is the heavenly born prince of peace who rules the world in truth and grace. And yet they've been stuck in their trenches shooting at one another. But now they're singing a totally different song. They're not singing, hey, Johnny, get your gun. Now they're singing, joy to the world. The Lord has come. They're singing the songs of Christmas in hell. And then finally, somebody gets brave enough, because it is a gamble, but somebody gets brave enough to climb out of his trench. That's a good way to get your head shut off, maybe. Except he didn't. And he climbs out of his trench, and then one by one, his fellow soldiers begin to climb out of their trench as well. And before long, every one of those soldiers on both sides have climbed out of their trenches, and they come and meet in the middle. They exchange gifts. They have conversation. They learn one another's names. They exchange addresses. Hey, you know what? If this war ever gets over with, you ought to come visit me in London. I'll show you where the best fish and chips are. And yeah, if, you, if this war ever gets over with, you ought to come visit me in Berlin. I'll show you where the best bratwurst is. And they end up, I mean, you could, you could search online. You can, there's pictures all over the place. They end up having their own little Christmas truce. Now, this wasn't authorized, of course. The five-star generals would never authorize such a thing. But in this one little spot, they just authorized their own little Christmas truce. And the very next day, Christmas Day, they did it again. They climbed out of their trenches. They met in the middle. No mustard gas. No bombs. No shooting. Just communion. Yeah, they shared communion together. And then... They played a soccer match because Jesus can turn war into a soccer match. In fact, if you go to this event, if you go to this uh, very location to this day, this very field, there's a monument to commemorate this event. It's, it's actually a cross. And it's tradition that when you go and visit this monument, it's customary to take a soccer ball and bring it with you and lay it, lay it at the foot of the cross. Now, you know, the very next day, December 26, time to get back to war, time to get back to shooting at one another. Except surprisingly, or maybe not so surprisingly, a lot of these soldiers were not so keen anymore on shooting their newfound friends who they discovered were brothers in Christ anyway. 
And so it was kind of hard to get the war back up and running in this one little spot. And a lot of the officers that were involved here were actually, they ended up being court-martialed by those five-star generals, but not by the Prince of Peace, who outranks them all. The five-star general says, you got to shoot that man. The Prince of Peace told me not to. And besides, I already met him. We exchanged gifts. We played soccer. We had communion. It would seem kind of rude of me to now try and shoot him. We can talk about Jesus saving souls for heaven, and I'm on board. I'm trying to show you this is how Christ saves the world. This is how Christ saves the world. And I'm not trying to preach a history lesson, you understand. I'm here on this second Sunday of Advent 2021 whether you're in this room, whether you're watching on the stream, whether you're listening by podcast, I'm here to call us out of our trenches. That's what we do. We get in our trenches. We get in our Republican trench. We get in our Democrat trench. We get in our conservative trench. We get in our liberal trench. We get in our various theological trenches and we got our statements and our positions and our systems and, well, he better not lift his head up. I'm gonna shoot it off. Online, of course. <laughs> We're in our trenches. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. I think I'm going to get out of my trench. You're going to get your head shot off, maybe. But Christianity is the risky gamble that Calvary love is greater than hate. That Calvary love is greater than sin and greater than death. And because of Jesus, I can put down my gun, get out of my trench, and go and meet my brother and sister. At the very end of the Bible, John the Revelator gives us this beautiful prophetic vision of the new Jerusalem. In fact, we, we, we sang a song this morning that, that borrows a line from this very passage. I think, I think Daniel's got my office bugged, and he listens to my sermons when I rehearse them. But it's this symbol, it's this metaphor for the world under the reign of Christ when all is made well. And here's the language that's used. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamb is its lamp. The nations, everybody say the nations. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut. We're called to belong to that. It's this vision of this beautiful city where the light is the glory of God and the lamp is the lamb. But all around the city, John tells us there's a burning fire that probably doesn't look much different than the Western Front in 1914. Sulfur, mustard gas, fire, disease, worms, and trenches. But inside the city, the people cry out, is anybody thirsty? 
We got stuff to eat, we got stuff to drink. Water of life, free of charge. Just come in. You gotta get out of your trench. I know it's risky, but come in. Come into the city and be a part of this new thing that God is doing. And so as we commemorate Advent, looking forward to Christmas, our task here at Village Church is to form people in Christ in such a way that they can hear the song of Christ and share in new creation. We sing about it. Share in this new creation that Jesus is already working this world that is being saved by Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.